This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, this is Joe Crane, host of Veteran on the Move podcast. And when I'm not helping veterans transition to entrepreneurship, I'm stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and have you ever had things not go right in your life and had to rebound? Our guest today went to prison and rebounded, relaunching his life and his financial accounts. Please welcome, from Wealth Well Done, Billy B., Plus, in our headline segment, artificial intelligence can now work as fast as a lawyer. Should you just use computers instead of people as your legal team? You know, I did it at Chuck E. Cheese a few years back. Worked out just fine. We'll weigh in on that. Throw out the Haven Lifeline to Luke, who wonders about cash reserves. How does he find a better interest rate on his money? We'll also answer a letter from the mailbag and... If you're lucky, old Uncle Doug might just throw out some of my mind-bending trivia. And now, two guys who Joe's mom says are the answer to a trivia question about podcasts going nowhere, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-J-J. This podcast is going nowhere? It's about it's about time somebody about time somebody told me. Hey everybody, I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter, and welcome back to the Stacking Benjamin Show for another week. And we're gonna kick it off big time here by introducing you to this guy across the card table, the one, the only, the OG. According to a recent Twitter thing that I saw, apparently I'm not the only other guy. But uh, there's a new gosh. new there's a new new other guy. What do they say? Uh, Imitation is the highest form of flattery. I guess. Must be a solid listener. I'm looking at you, guy from Texas, who's on Twitter. That guy. I said, uh, horrible the guy. Other guy. You know what? Speaking of uh, that guy on Twitter, and if he keeps up this uh, tomfoolery, we got to thank LegalZoom for supporting Stacky Benjamins. It's almost National Small Business Month, OG. At LegalZoom.com, LegalZoom's not a law firm, but their network of independent attorneys can provide the legal advice your business needs to take care of that dude in Texas using your name. Keep listening for more valuable resources and use code SB for special savings at LegalZoom.com. I don't think you'd use LegalZoom that way, actually, would you? Probably. Probably not. <laughs> I could use it however I wanted to use it. That's right. Absolutely. But make sure you use a code SB for some special savings when you do. Remember that. Looking for a better way to invest? You got to check out M1 Finance. They completely rethought and rejiggered how, as mom says, uh, how online brokerages should work. I've heard the term rejiggered since I was like nine. 
But uh, with M1, you build investment portfolio by specifying what percentage of your money you want to go into certain investments. It's that simple, as easy as a savings account. M1 automates all the buying and selling to put your money into your portfolio with the correct allocation. It even uses fractional shares, OG, so every penny goes to work, and it intelligently adapts how it directs the money based on market movement. It's a no-brainer to check out for anybody interested in investing. Best of all, they've wiped out all the trading and baloney fees that other brokerages and robos charge. Do yourself a favor. Check it out on the web at stackybenjamins.com forward slash M, the number one finance, stackybenjamins.com forward slash M1 finance, or download their slick mobile app on iOS or Android. M1 finance, be invested. We're invested in a great show today. Billy B has a horror story, OG. Guy went to prison, and he's got the story of how he went to prison and how he's putting his life back together. And, uh, Man, a lot, a lot, a lot of lessons in today's show. But first, we had a show that teaches you nothing. We actually have some lessons today. What's up with that? Not from us. Not from, to be clear. But we've got headlines first, so let's move. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins Headlines. Our first headline comes to us from Inc.com. This is written by Kevin J. Ryan. This software works just as accurately as your lawyer, only 200 times faster. Artificial intelligence startup Law Geeks puts its software up against a group of lawyers. The results were pretty eye-opening, it says. Watch out, attorneys. The bots are coming. They're getting good at your job. For some lawyers, contract review takes up a huge amount of time and can be extremely tedious. That's why the co-founders of Law Geeks began their company in 2014. The Tel Aviv-based startup creates software that uses artificial intelligence to study contracts, flagging any language or stipulations that seem out of the ordinary. LawGeeks released its software to the public early last year. Recently, though, the company decided it wanted to truly put it to the test. In a study overseen by attorneys from Duke University and Stanford University, the startup had 20 experienced lawyers separately study five new non-disclosure agreements while the AI did the same. What do you think about this, man? Um, AI versus attorneys. I don't mind this idea of them going over contracts, right? Having AI go over in contracts for me. But I think if it comes to writing new contracts on my behalf, the idea of having a person in your corner has some has a lot of merit. I think the way that all of this stuff is going is to supplement technology and human interaction, right? Because there are some things, like for example, in my job, rebalancing, right? You remember doing this, you'd take a spreadsheet and you'd download all the positions and then you'd create a formula of here's what I want the new positions to look like. And then you'd, you know, have to shuffle it up and then spit out the result. And then you'd have to go and enter all the transactions. And now I just click a button that's using technology, but I have to know the difference between rebalancing for this client who remembered to tell me yesterday that, Oh, by the way, I really want to keep $10,000 in cash in my account. Or knowing that the transaction costs associated with rebalancing a smaller account isn't worth it today, right? It's $9 to do this trade. Well, I'm not going to do that. The computer is not going to know that necessarily. Of course, you can make programs for anything. At the end of the day, I think when it comes to this example with lawyers, you want to take away that stuff that's rote and just kind of a boring, monotonous task because there are things that you can miss by doing it. 
right? If you got to read a 200 page contract. But well, this is what scares me. What scares me isn't the, I totally agree with you on the technology. What scares me is, you know, there's going to be people trying to use this technology the wrong way. They're going to go, instead of having the technology supplement the legal advice, the legal opinion that knows you, that understands the situation, that has all the complex nuances that's being a human, somebody's going to go, forget all that. I'm doing it myself. I'm going to hire this thing. I'm going to go cheap. And then it doesn't go their way. And and then, you know, then they're blaming everybody except themselves. We just recently went through updating our estate plan with our attorney. We went through a lot of iterations on it, not because it was not correct. It's just the more we read it, the more we wanted to make small changes and adjustments to it. And our attorney knows how we think about money and how we think about our family. And and I would say to him, okay, here's what I want it to say. How does that stand up in court? How does that, you know, and he, and he would come back and say, well, we can't do that. We can do this instead, which is similar, but here's the downsides and here's the upsides to doing that. You might want to consider option C instead, which gosh, it's, it's almost like it's no different than when we had a computer instead of a word processor and a word processor instead of a typewriter and a typewriter instead of somebody writing it by hand, you know, every step is a faster thing to get rid of the mundane task that can be done by a machine. But for you guys with your example of your estate plan, I think that's a perfect example. Something happens to you, Mrs. OG, your family is going to immediately turn to an attorney and say, how do I figure all this stuff out? And if you were just working with a machine, then they have to bring in an attorney cold. It's going to cost more money because they don't know the situation. They got to get up to speed on whatever's going on with your family. In the case of you already working with the attorney, it's like you've already pre, pre-chosen the person the family could work with. They don't have to, but it's certainly going to make it easier on everybody because you already had the human interaction. That person's going to go, here's what they meant by that. Here's what they want to have happen. Here's the... You know, they can take care of all those things ahead of time. It's like you pre-chose who the attorney is your family would work with if something happened to you. Well, and how many times do you remember from being an advisor when somebody would pass away or something like that and the widow or the nephew or the grandchild would come in and go, I, I don't even know what to do. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Step here's one. a box that I found in grandma's closet. Does this help? You know, I I remember an estate that we helped a client settle years ago and for the better part of a year, she would come in every quarter and go, Hey, I just got another quarterly statement from this bank over in Idaho. I didn't even know that he ever went to Idaho, but apparently he's got $38,000 over there. You know, we live here. How do we get to Idaho to do it, to deal with this? I don't think having that on, you know, your computer, which is effectively what we're talking about here is going to solve all that. Right. You know, I mean, yeah. it certainly helps have a list, yeah. right? Yeah. But um, you want to use technology, I think, to supplement that human interaction. And there's going to be plenty of people that say, I don't need human interaction. I'm good. With, well, there are times when you don't, which is why we have LegalZoom, you know, sponsoring today's show, because there are times when you don't. I just need a simple contract. I need to make sure it's yeah. a simple contract that's straightforward. I don't need I don't need the human interaction. But that's so, you doing it yourself. That's not a robot doing it. That, 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 that's, that's true too. You, you doing it. Yes. You are the you are the attorney in yeah. that case, you know, in some respects. So it, there's it, a slippery slope here. I, I think it really is. Uh, our second headline comes to us from Yahoo Finance. You know, Warren Buffett wrote the uh, annual Berkshire Investor Letter recently. So everybody's wondering what the highlights are. Well, we got them. 
we've got oh, them cool. right here. Seven oh, highlights too, because I haven't got a chance to read it. Yet. <laughs> Seven highlights from Warren Buffett's Berkshire Investor Letter. This written by William Watts uh, in America. TL slash DR isn't that what the, the, <laughs> the, the, the do here? In America, equity investors have the wind at their backs. Whatever you think of Warren Buffett, the billionaire investor is away with words. His annual investor letter issued over about the last 50 years or poured over for clues to Berkshire Hathaway's plans, but also, and usually more productively, for the lessons the 87-year-old Buffett and his right-hand man, Berkshire Vice Chairman Charlie Munger, have gleaned over the years as the world's preeminent value investor. This year's letter came in at 17 pages, which is notably shorter than past missives. It truncates much of the usual discussion on Berkshire's non-insurance businesses. Buffett said that discussion, quote, has become both repetitious and particularly duplicative of information regularly included in Berkshire's 10K regulatory filing. For that reason, he said this year's letter offered a simple summary of both those business activities, pointing investors to the filing for more details. First of all, deal-making CEOs and explaining why he thinks it's so difficult to find standalone companies to buy at a sensible price. Buffett blames a buying frenzy driven in part by overly eager corporate managers who are egged on by their boards. Quote, if Wall Street analysts or board members urge that brand of CEO to consider possible acquisitions, it's a bit like telling your ripening teenager to be sure to have a normal sex life. <laughs> Go get them. Go get them, partner. <laughs> just okay. I didn't say that. Warren Buffett said it. Just old, old man's off his rocker. A little just, bit, just, right. just so, so that you know. But if Wall Street's going crazy for companies, OG, it's hard to buy. I mean, he's looking for sensible prices in the market, and he's not seeing it right now outside of his own companies. Second, on leverage and sleeping well. Quote: Our aversion to leverage has dampened our returns over the years, but Charlie and I sleep well. Both of us believe it's insane to risk what you have and need in order to obtain what you don't need. Man, I love that. I can't tell you the number of times I've seen investors get in trouble with leverage, but I can tell you the number of times I've seen investors not get in trouble when they applied leverage when they shouldn't have. I can count that on one hand. It seems like there's always a sad tale at the end of using leverage. Well, it's not just the leverage when it comes to equity investing, and you're talking maybe about like a margin account or something like that, but just leverage in general, right? How much, how much softer was your pillow when you got out of debt, right? And when you got back into debt, how much more tossing and turning did you do? And then got back out again, how much softer was it? We've both been through that cycle once or twice, and, and it's, um, at the end of the day, it's way more comfortable to not owe anybody any money, <laughs> even even if it's your brokerage company yeah. that you don't owe money to. No, I think that's important, which which brings up another point. And I'm not going to go through all of them. We'll link to them in our show notes at stackybedjamins.com. Oh, sorry. But, but yeah, yeah, that Buffett guy. Liquidity and the kindness of strangers. In a discussion on Berkshire's insurance float, the pool of money collected from premiums, but not yet paid out in claims, Buffett talks about the desire for ample liquidity. Quote, Charlie and I never will operate Berkshire in a manner that depends on the kindness of strangers or even that of friends who may be facing liquidity problems of their own. During the 2008-2009 crisis, we liked having treasury bills, loads of treasury bills that protected us from having to rely on funding sources such as bank lines or commercial paper. We have intentionally constructed Berkshire in a manner that will allow it to comfortably withstand economic discontinuities 
including such extremes as extended market closures. Man, I think that's, you know, people always ask us, OG, about cash reserves and about keeping cash in the bank. Like, why do I have cash reserves when I could just be investing that money? Look at what, look at what one of the richest people in the world is saying. Yeah. Cash on hand, fantastic thing. Mucho importante. So much more boring, but so much more important. He talks about over the long term uh, things being bullish. And then finally, he talks about watching fees. Buffett's a stock picker, but he's adamant most investors are better off sticking with passive low cost index tracking products in a section where he again bashes Wall Street and hedge funds. He reminds, quote, performance comes, performance goes. Fees never falter. He's a big boy on that point. So I'll link to this on their show notes page at stackybedgements.com. Number one. Uh, lesson, I think, is read Warren Buffett's letter. I mean, read not just Warren Buffett, but read smart people that have been there before, right? And in the second piece about attorneys versus computers, once again, I still think there's a big place for people that have been there before and can kind of guide you about what's important and what's not important, where a computer, it'll be able to discern what's good and what's bad, but guide you? I'm not so sure we're there yet. I first met Billy B at uh, FinCon. I was introduced to him about a guy that had an amazing story. And when you start off your story about your friend dying and uh, the cops are on their way to your house, uh, that's a bad way to start a story. And certainly Billy's done a lot to clean up his life and he's going to tell you a lot of great stories, I'm sure, as he's uh, walking down the basement. Let's welcome from Wealth Well Done, our friend Billy B. And coming down to the basement, it's the one, the only, Mr. Billy B from Wealth Well Done. How are you, man? I'm doing great today. Super excited to be here uh, on this podcast with you. Well, it's great that you could make Texarkana part of your worldwide tour to tell the world about you. I know that you've been doing a lot of great things lately, but things were always, as you know, Billy, things were always great in your life. Tell me, tell me the moment that you knew and how old you were when you saw the wheels were coming off the bus. I was 21 years old. I was about to be a senior in college. I was a Dean's List student in college, and I thought I had life all figured out. Awesome. Dean's List student. Good yep, kid. Yep. Probably a good family background. Yep. Uh, good family background. I was in college, and I was walking home from class, and this is when my life started to fall apart into nothing I ever expected. I was walking home from school, and my friend wasn't answering his cell phone. And the night before, I had partied really hard with him. We thought we were having a great time. I get home. And I call his house phone because I was still looking for him and his roommate answers. And I thought I was just going to say, hey, where's my friend at? And on the other hand, I hear, Bill, he's dead. He's dead. The cops are here. They're looking for you. You got to get out of there right now. My heart dropped. I didn't know what to expect. And I thought this can't be happening to good kids like us. Well, the first thing you're thinking, I mean, I'm trying to think about what's going on in your head at this moment. I mean, the first thing I'm thinking is my friend's dead. Second thing, the like the cops are looking for you. Did that resonate at all, or was it just my my buddy's dead? No, we can we can slow that down to that moment. It was a total moment of disbelief. In fact, we always thought using needles and using hard drugs would lead to death. We never thought just you know snorting some prescription pills, taking pills, combining with alcohol would ever lead to that. 
So it was total shock and bewilderment. And I almost hoped my friends were going to jump through the door and laugh at me and go, ha ha, we got you. Yeah. And that wasn't happening. So it was a period of five minutes that I sat there in total shock. And then I remembered that night. And I remember when he left my house, we were both really high. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this could really be happening. Wow. It, it, he's a guy you've known, you'd known for a long time or met him in uh, college? Yeah, yeah. We were college friends. Okay. Uh, we lived in the dorms next to each other. So as good as friends as you could be within a couple of years of going to college together. Wow. So when did it start to sink in the second half of that sentence? The cops are looking for you. And that's exactly what happened. The first five minutes was total shock, bewilderment. And then the next thing is, like, I, I said, I have to figure this nightmare out because I realized it wasn't a bad dream happening. I just was like, I have to get out of here. I have to go home. It was in pure panic mode. I grabbed a backpack full of everything that was illegal that was in my apartment. You know, I had drugs and paraphernalia and I was a partier. I thought I was a professional partier and I went running out my front door and the police were already there looking for me. So it wasn't your first time with drugs. You had you had been around the block with drugs before for some time. Totally. You know, I made the mistake of thinking I could live two different lives because I knew drugs were illegal. So I grew up in this lifestyle thinking I'll do what everybody else wants me to be. I'll be this perfect college student that my parents, my teachers want me to be. And then in my own personal life, I can be who I want to be. And I want to risk and explore and test and learn things for myself. And I like drugs and I thought they were okay. And so uh, you get to your house, you pull up in your car, I suppose, then. No, I didn't even get out of my front door oh, in my apartment. they were at your house. And they, they, yes. And you got they, were, they, they had come to my college apartment because they knew from the description that they had, they knew where I lived, but they didn't know what room I had. Okay. And so I went flying out the front door and the police are already in the hallway. They recognized me and I was in total shock just as they walked towards me. And I remember just saying, but he was okay when he left. Yeah. Um, but at this point, I mean, is it the backpack of drugs? Did they go through your backpack and, and that was the problem? Was it the, uh, was it the problem that you were with your friend the night? Like, it doesn't sound like it was, it was you being a guy using drugs that was a problem. It was your affiliation with this guy that was the issue. The issue was that the police were investigating somebody who died, and I was part of that. Okay. So therefore, when I got arrested and the handcuffs went behind my back for the very first time in my life, put a squad car, they brought me to the jail, and they found the drugs that I had on me. Why did they arrest you? Did they arrest you just because on suspicion that you had something to do with him dying? Yes. I fit the description of the person that they looked at. Okay. So when they approached me, I fit the description. They put me under arrest for investigation purposes. Then when we got to the police department, they opened up my backpack and there was drugs and bam, I'm now getting charged with uh, drug possession and on my way to jail. You led him to the front door, Billy. I mean, you packed them all up and handed them to him. You could look at that. You could also look at the shame that I felt that my friend is dead. I don't know what's going on. Right. I mean, it was everything that could have gone wrong that night went wrong. I mean, from my decisions down to coincidences happening, everything. What's it like? How old are you now? 37. I just turned 37. Wow. So, so this happened 16 years ago, 15 years ago now. Yeah. How does it feel even 16 years later telling this story? I mean, it's my life. I feel horrible shame and embarrassment for some of the decisions that I made, some of the mistakes that I made. But at the same time, I forgave myself and I fought back from that thing to make a life that I am really proud of. So if I can sit there and share that with anybody to make them realize that they can turn their life around at any moment, I mean, that's what I live for right now. 
That's what's so exciting about your story. And of course, your blog, Wealth Well Done, is this uh, phoenix from the flame. So you end up in prison. And it's my understanding that you couldn't even get off early for good behavior. Yeah. So what happened from that moment of when I was arrested for the drug charges, the toxicology reports came back and part of the drugs that led to his death were delivered by me. I ended up getting charged with reckless homicide by delivery of a controlled substance because we were using my drugs at my apartment. For the first time ever, I was sentenced to 10 years in prison for it. I'd never been in serious trouble before this. And now I had to cope with this new incarcerated reality. And in the state of Wisconsin in the 90s, they had get tough on crime. They'd taken all good time, all, all positive behavior away from inmates. So once you were sentenced to 10 years, you do every single day of that 10 years. So I'm very happy that I was finally released on August 21st of 2012. 2012, just over five years ago. Five years and four months ago. I want to get to that part of the story because that's the fascinating part. But probably equally as fascinating, though, is when in prison did things really start to turn around for you? I would say the first two weeks of jail and and going through the trial were just a mind-boggling, depressing um, shock, panic. And then, you know, at some point, I had to make a logical decision of, am I going to stay in the state forever or am I going to figure out a way to work out of the state? So probably about two weeks, I started devoting my life to saying, okay, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know what type of reality or life I'm going to live, but I'm going to figure out a way that not only I can be happy in here, but I can somehow turn my life around at some point. From that point on, it was just hope and faith that I can get out of here one day and I can make my life better. I'm sure that the system doesn't make it easy for you to turn your life around, though. No. Um, however, you know, I always rather, I mean, my whole life, I could sit there and point the finger at other people for why my life was sucked. But I sat there and said, well, I have a library that's full of books. I can get any book I want to. I'm full of people that maybe I'm not the best friends with. But hey, there's 300 people on my housing unit. I can learn from 10 of them. So I always just adopted the mindset that I have to accept what I can control, what I can learn from rather than be frustrated by what I can't do. Well, and it's funny, Billy, because we talk about, you know, the importance of having a mastermind and people that are moving in the same direction. It sounds like you found a mastermind. Even in prison, you found a mastermind. Sure. Like I would say is, uh, you know, if I was on a housing pod with 300 people, you know, probably 95% of them are people I really don't want to associate with, but I'm going to get along with. But then there's going to be 5% of those people that committed a crime long ago, and it could have been a very severe crime that they're doing life sentences for. But at some point in their life, they had some type of awakening that happened within them, whether it be spiritual or what else, that they said, you know what, I'm here, my life's a nightmare, but that doesn't have to be the end of my story, and they're going to make something of it. So I sought out those people. And one of my favorite lines ever that I learned from in there was, as iron sharpens iron, so does a friend sharpen a friend. And I looked for friends that were going to try to help make me better, and I could make them better in the process. And now, remember... You know, this was all when I was in prison. I had no idea if any of this would ever work or not. It was total just, I'm going to try my hardest and hope that things work out for me. And so you started then putting a plan together. I love this. You started putting a plan together. What did uh, Billy's plan look like? <laughs> for for when I got out? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that that's awesome. Um, my goal when I got out, I just wanted to first get a job. I wanted to say, hey, I could get a job for $10 an hour because once I had that, hey, at least I wouldn't be going back to prison. 
because that was my number one goal at the beginning. It was no no massive goals of being rich or famous or anything. It was just one simple thing, not go back to prison and be successful. And so that was the goal. I ended up going to college when I first got out six days after I was released and I graduated college within that first year. So that was Returning to college and finishing colleges was kind of my uh, stepping stone back to real life. Six days after you got out, you're in you're in college classes. Yes, uh, and 16 credits too, which was pretty severe. Oh, but yes. so so six days after, I think I got out on a Tuesday. Monday, 16 credits of college started. It was kind of crazy when I walked in into my first college classroom and I saw all these computers without wires attached to them, and I'd never seen Wi-Fi before. That was shocking to me. I, uh, but you know what? I was just like, you know what? One step at a time. Don't be shocked by anything. Fake it until you make it. Do good in school. Go on to your next goal, get a job, and then just go for your dreams after that. How did the getting a job go? Because you, of course, you've seen all these things before that I've read that, man, in today's environment, anything on your record makes it nearly impossible to get a job. Yeah. Uh, and I had heard all that too. So, you know, I make it look really easy now what I did in life, but I remember there was so much fear of, of not making it when I first got out of, of would people accept me, you know, but I, I just took the same thing that I thinking that I had developed in prison that, you know what, even if 90% of society doesn't like me, there's going to be that 10% who's going to want to give me a second chance. And I don't have to care about what the other 90% thinks. All I have to do is find that 10% who wants to help me. And fortunately for me and, you know, the attitude I had, it was even higher than 90% of the people or 10% of the people that wanted to help me. I love how you turn this around in your head because it's the second time you turned it around. You said 95% of the people in prison I want nothing to do with. That leaves 5%. My job's to find them. Same thing with the job. 90% of the people aren't going to want to deal with you. 10% of those people are. I just got to find those 10%. You keep reminding yourself, it sounds like, that this is a numbers game and the only person that can control the numbers is you. You know, bam. And I've just started to realize this now when I look back on my life. But where my success came from is, you know, I'm a very, I'm a faith-driven guy, but I'm a logic-driven guy too. So I look the percentages in my head and I try to put myself in position where the best percentages lead to success. Yeah. And if you can put yourself, it's, it's the same thing that the, the great maxim in life that you're the average of the five people that you're around most often. Well, I just want to find the five people that are amazing because then the percentages of my chances of becoming amazing go up. So it's a numbers game for me and it's just putting yourself in positions to succeed. It's almost like being in the wrong, you know, group of people or in the wrong situation with drugs early on, like kind of drove you to, you know what, I want to be in the right situation with the right people today. Like, you know what I mean? Like you might not realize this stuff had you not gone through what you went through. Is that true? You know, it must be, you know, I'll never know what could have happened to me if I wouldn't have gotten in trouble. I mean, I look at it, I'm grateful for every day I have now because I could have been the one that's dead the next night on a couch, a college couch somewhere. That could have been a realistic outcome for me. But yeah, from this horrible nightmare, I learned right off the bat that I made horrible mistakes and horrible decisions that led to horrible consequences. So I looked at it as like, well, if I can fix my mind to get rid of those horrible decisions and horrible mistakes, then the horrible consequences will kind of go away. And that's exactly what led me to my success, saying if I can make awesome decisions and successful you know, choices, then that will lead me to a better life. And I didn't know if it would work. I mean, the cool thing about my life is like it it was all done on faith and hope that it would work. And that's what I'm so excited about today because it did work for me. Yeah. I mean, building that faith and hope built into a plan 
that you actually put together and work the plan every day. I want to ask you about this. So you work on two things the minute you get out. You build yourself income by having a job, by, by getting a job. And that, by the way, did it end up being a $10 an hour job? Yeah, it was actually, uh, I got a job stacking shelves on magazines for, in big box stores. You were the happiest magazine stacker ever. I was. And you know what? Because I, I was. I was I was grateful for it. But I also knew that this wasn't my end story. This was just the beginning. Because if I could accomplish that one goal, then I'm ready to set my next goal and go on top of that. Then the other side is obviously then you have education that you're doing, which hopefully then leads to more income. So you're building this income stream. Let's talk about saving though, right? I mean, and capturing this money because you've done a good job of doing that too. But when did you start capturing some money in terms of savings and getting that part of the act together? Yeah, that my whole journey to wealth, I consider happened on accident. Right now, I've been out of prison about five years. I have about a quarter million dollar net worth in real estate, stocks, cash, everything. That, that all came about after that? All came about uh, after prison? Yeah, I, I think I left prison. I was on a work release program the last year, so I had about $10,000 when I exited prison. Yeah, so $240,000 after that, roughly. Yep, roughly that. Because like I said, I didn't have anything other than what I was getting out of prison with. You know, I had an awesome family that helped me. You know, I lived in my parents' basement for the first, I think, year and a half hey, until I got out of there. Don't knock that. No, hey, it worked for me. And you know what? My parents had the attitude is you can stay here as long as you want rent free, as long as you're doing your best to get the heck out of here. I know. I mean, look at us. Works great for us. So <laughs> we're not going to we're not going to talk bad about mom's basement ever here. Yep. Right. Yep. So, I mean, when I went to prison, I was a broke college student. I didn't have any assets or anything worth anything. So what systems did you use? How did you then translate this income stream into wealth? Yeah, sure. So when I I have to say that I only worked that stacking magazines job for about two months because when I was working that job, I was applying for better jobs. During the interview process, a business owner looked at me and says, you know what? You have the attitude and people skills that you could start your own business if you want. He's like, I'll teach you how to do it. Be an independent rep for me, sell my products, and you go have fun in your life and do whatever you want to do. And I looked at him and I said, man, that sounds like a cool life. So he taught me. I went door to door. I think I made like $25,000 my, well, actually I made like $1,000 my first six months. And then I made $25,000 my next six months. And then 40 grand after that and 60 grand after that. And then my wife and I, I got married the first year and, you know, we just went after my biggest fear was getting in trouble that brought me back to prison. And money problems would cause me problems in life. So those motivated me to save every dime I had so I could do what I want to with my life, which is ultimately help people and do this type of stuff. Did you then manually put money away? Did you have it automatically deducted from your bank account? Like, tell me the mechanisms by which you got this money saved. Was it just force yep. of will? Yep. my Force of will. Uh, my wife and I had the attitude that an Egg McMuffin at McDonald's was a big purchase until we had life figured out. If we didn't need something and we were spending money on it, it was a waste of money. So in my parents' basement, uh, we saved a ton of money. And then also we needed to move out of there because we became successful enough to do that. And, and we hadn't been married yet. And so we had 40 grand, I think, at that point. We bought a house with our first $40,000 down payment. We skipped a wedding. We had a $1,000 wedding in my parents' living room. We bought a house. Um, I think the next year then we started saving more money. And I said, well, what am I going to do with this extra twenty dollars to $30,000 I have? So we learned uh, just reading blogs and online. We learned how to invest in mutual funds. And that was a whole new avenue. So we invested there. And then about a year ago, we said, you know, our business is doing great, but we'd like some more steady cash flow. So we bought our first investment property last year. And that cash flows us about 600 bucks a month now. 
And ultimately, it's not about getting rich for us. It's about getting free so we can help people. That's what we want to do. We want to inspire people that there is a better life out there. So that's our, our accidental story to getting wealthy. That is so exciting and it's so inspirational. And I can hear it in your voice, though, still, Billy. It sounds like you still miss your friend, though. Like if you could have all this and have your friend back, you'd totally have it. You know, um, when I stop and think about it, I hate the decisions I made that led to that absolute nightmare. On the other side of it, you know, it was 15 years ago. And at some point you have to forgive yourself and yeah. you have to say it's okay to move on, not for selfish reasons, but because it's the right thing to do. Because if you stay in depression and solitary for the rest of your life, you're not going to help anyone. Right. And you're going to waste a life. And I don't want to be that guy. And that motivates me to be a bigger beacon of life for other people who are struggling out there. Well put, man. The blog is called Wealth Well Done. Tell everybody about what you do over there because, man, do you have quite an inspirational blog. Well, cool, man. Wealth Well Done is all about fixing the problems in your mind. All success comes from understanding the philosophy of success. And really, what I learned in prison was to avoid three massive problems in your life for prisons. There's physical prisons, there's self-esteem prisons, and there's financial prisons that people get stuck in for their entire rest of their life. And if you can free yourself from those, of not believing the lies that people tell you, and also of getting it in debt, that's just going to put you in another prison. If you can stay out of those things, you can live your absolute dreams. So I don't promote about even getting rich. I say, get enough money where you can do what your soul is calling you to do. That's so great. And it's wealthwelldone.com. We'll have a link to it on our show notes at stackybenjamins.com. Dude, thanks for coming down to the basement and telling us your story. And congratulations on all of the great steps you've made. And I can't wait to see what you do in the future. Man, thanks so much for having me on, Joe. It was a pleasure. It was a great time meeting you. And I, I absolutely loved this experience. So thank you. Hey there, trivia nerds. I am pretty excited to do the trivia today because I just realized that some of those big trivia quiz show producers are probably listening to this podcast to glean clues about how we perform the best part of this whole podcast, my trivia. No shortcuts here, folks. No, sir. We do things the old-fashioned artisanal way. We use only the finest vine-ripened tomatoes and fine Corinthian leather to make this here trivia, like this question right here. In the 1994 film Quiz Show, based on true events in 1956, Rafe Fiennes plays a contestant who wins a fixed game on what quiz show? I'll be back with a non-fixed answer, unless Larry in Milwaukee gets it right, in which case we'll ask a different question right after this. What will your story be in 2018? Now that the holiday rush is over, LegalZoom can help you make this a memorable year before all the distractions take hold. Finally, get serious about launching and running your business. Square away your family's financial future with the right estate plan. You can do all this and more with LegalZoom. LegalZoom's been helping people like you take care of their dreams and responsibilities for more than 16 years. They're not a law firm but they have the resources to keep you on the right path, including advice from their network of independent attorneys all at your fingertips. LegalZoom plugs right into your life so you can take care of the things that matter most. Go to LegalZoom.com today and get special savings when you enter SB at checkout. LegalZoom, where life meets legal. LegalZoom.com. 
Hey, stackers, I'm sure you know by now that both my spouse Cheryl and I use M1 Finance for our personal investments. That doesn't make it right for you. You should do your own homework. We'll call that our disclaimer here up top. But recently, we've had exciting news from the team at M1 Finance. They've announced they're now a completely free-to-use investing platform. You heard that right. No fees, no commissions outside of the investments themselves. I sat down with Brian Barnes, CEO and founder, and asked what made him decide to make M1 Finance free. We believe in the future, all investing platforms will be free. So it was a decision to get ahead of the curve. It's obviously beneficial for the customer who will save money and be able to invest more. For M1, we have other sources of revenue, which were greater than the fee we charge. So the more people using M1, the better for us as well. So how about that? No fees, no commissions, just you with more money to save and in control of your portfolio. They'll even invest fractional shares for you. You take the wheel or have them invest in a professionally managed approach like some of the robo companies out there. It takes only a minute to sign up. Start by heading over to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash M1 Finance. M1 Finance, be invested. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, back with a thrilling answer to today's trivia question, which was this. In the 1994 film Quiz Show, based on true events in 1956, Rafe Fiennes plays a contestant who wins a fixed game on what quiz show? The answer? Rafe Fiennes played Charles Van Dorn, a contestant whom producers want to win, so they have another contestant throw the game. Which game, you ask? The show, hosted by longtime game show host Jack Berry, was called 21. Get it? If so, fantastic! If you're Larry in Milwaukee, put away the Wikipedia, Larry. Come on! You don't remember that whole controversy? Or ever read about those controversies about those rigged quiz shows in the 1950s? No, I uh, wasn't around during that period of time. Yeah, but you must have read about them. I mean, it's, it's very interesting nope. the way that these came out, where especially now that you love Trivia HQ. I do. I love that. Uh, I, I don't understand how you'd possibly cheat with HQ Trivia, but... Um, but you know what's funny about that? there's a way. Well, I don't know if there is a way, but when I looked up that whole topic, I mean, it's Google, Google Central is how to cheat at it. Like article after article after article is how to cheat it. Is it trivia HQ or HQ trivia? You've done that on on Google, right? Where you type in something and then see what it autofills. Right. So let's let's do that. How do I cheat? Here are the options: on a test, on my boyfriend, on Sims Four, on my husband, or on Pokemon Go. Those are the ones that came up when I. Those go from. Those go from slightly not great to just morally. <laughs> Wait, this is this is Mrs. OG's computer. Oh, hold on a second. <laughs> whoa, whoa, Sweetheart, whoa! Yeah. Talk. Oh, it's time for us to throw out Dave and Lifeline OG and tackle some of life's or rather life insurance's most important questions. Our friends over at the Haven Life Insurance Agency are disrupting the life insurance industry by focusing on what you value most. Oh. Right now, it's definitely HQ Trivia at 2 o'clock and 8 o'clock Central. (laughs) Or your family and your time. Of course, if you win big, you'll have much more for your family and your time. 
It's why they created a simple way to buy affordable and dependable term life insurance online. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free estimate for coverage and learn about life insurance the modern way. That's stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life. And they now go up to $2 million at Haven Life. But today, this podcast goes up to 11 because we have our new friend Luke here. Say hello, Luke. Hi, Joan OG. I've been listening to the show for a year and a half, and unfortunately, I haven't learned anything, so don't quiz me if you return my call. I have a question about savings vehicles. I am 23 years old and have a little over $10,000 in savings, $3,000 of which is in a checking account for easy access, while the other $7,000 or so is in a high-yield savings account that I found through your website and Magnify Money. The account earns 1.35% currently. I have a couple of short-term savings goals ahead of me. One is set to happen in a little under a year. The other may happen closer to five years from now, give or take a year, depending on circumstances. I would like to keep up with the average inflation rate of 3% for the five-year goal. Is five years long enough to possibly hedge against a loss in a stock index fund, or would a quote-unquote safer position in a triple B corporate bond index be better? What would you suggest? Thanks. Welcome to the after voicemail, the part of the voicemail that doesn't exist. I have a personal question for both of you. I am in the process of becoming a financial planner with a local firm and would like to know more about your experience in the industry if you would humor me so I can possibly glean some insight from you. If you would be so kind to reach out to me, I would really appreciate it. Thanks. I have never heard. Isn't that cool? There's like a space after his question and then he has like this secondary thing that we're not allowed that. to talk about. Isn't that, that isn't that interesting? I've never heard of that. Well, we've we've got two different questions from Luke. Let's start off with this. So the one year goal, he's he's down with saving for cash with in cash, it sounds like, which is easily our recommendation. What about that five year goal, OG? Well, you might have heard me chuckle there or kind of kind of laugh. His quote unquote safe triple B but no, no, no. That's junk bonds. Dude, that's not safe, man. That looks safe and it looks sexy as hell, but it ain't it's nothing. It's not safe. And if you so, look at if you look at junk bonds profile, if you're worried about uh, the risk of stocks, junk bonds respond to market conditions very similarly. They correlate much yeah. much higher to stocks than most yeah. other bonds. So, yeah, you're getting that monster dividend which offsets some of the volatility. But if you're worried about stocks, I'm not sure I'm going the junk bond route. Well, and take a look at the interest rate market right now. We've had a, a little bit of interest rate kind of creeping up a little bit. we got a federal, new Federal Reserve chairman that seems to think that interest rates need to go up just a skosh. And if they do, your bond prices are going to go down. So anyways, that's a whole topic for another day. Here's the deal. If it's a five-year goal, you're right on the edge. Normally, I'd say seven, but five years is whatever. You have to ask yourself this question. If you get to Do this I goal, feel lucky? <laughs> yeah, that's the question. You're right. Well, <laughs> do you, punk? That's right. exactly the question. Here's the question. If you get to four years and nine months and you're like, I'm so happy that I get to do this cool goal of mine in three months from now, and then the market takes a gigantic crap to the tune of 20% and you don't have this, as much money as you need to make your goal happen, do you just go, eh, It'll rebound in like a couple of years. I'll just do the gold then. Or do you get really ticked off? If you're going to get really ticked off, then it doesn't belong in stocks. You have to, you know, you have to be more conservative with it. There's just not a way for you to be 
keeping up with inflation and ultra conservative. That just doesn't doesn't happen in real life. You could get a little bit closer and buy maybe like a two year treasury or something like that, you know, and ladder that, I suppose, or look at a five year CD at the bank. Uh, that might give you some other, you know, just a skosh more interest. But you really have to decide if the world takes a gigantic crap right before you want to cash this money in and you're down 20 percent. Does that ruin your day? If it doesn't, then what the heck? Have at it. If it does, then you shouldn't. Yeah, it depends on flexibility. I mean, if that if that goal is flexible and you can push it back, then then why not worry about it? I mean, if he was more specific about what the goal were, we might be able to help out more there. But, you know, if it is a hard, fast five-year goal and he just wants to keep up with inflation, I'm using my Ginny Mace for the win, man. I'm using my Ginny Mace. I just think no matter what happens to bonds over that period of time, he's going to reach that 3% goal that he's looking at historically. I think uh, the risk level is incredibly low. So I'm betting on my Ginny May train. If that's his expectation in terms of return he's looking for, I think it's a no mess, no fuss. Sure. And again, you have to recognize that there's no guarantees in life and, you know, it may turn out or it may not, but uh I'm just looking at degrees of degrees of probability there. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think that that reaches his goal. Hey, let's let's take this second question that we're not allowed to talk about after that weird space in his I don't know what that's all about. But he talked about being a financial advisor. The tips you can give a young financial advisor about the industry. Yeah, don't tell your client with a five year goal to put his money in triple B rated bonds. <laughs> 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 That'll end badly in a hurry. Your career will be over before it starts. <laughs> I think the thing to remember is that being a financial planner is a lot early about being a great connector and being a great problem solver. And we just had Scott on the show uh, a week ago, yeah. two weeks ago about, yeah. uh, about being a good connector. And that's kind of what you want to do. You know, I'd hate, hate to say that uh, great financial planners are really great marketers early, but they kind of are, you know, I mean, the reality is, is that you have to be good at convincing people who are reluctant to do what's in their best interest to do it and to pay you to do it. And, you have to do that repeatedly in a really short period of time. Otherwise, you're not going to make any money and then you're going to go do something different. So you do have to be a good connector and you have to be a good problem solver. It's a sad fact in the business that I learned early on that the smartest person in my office, and I was in a big office, I was with a pretty big firm, that the smartest person in the office was not the wealthiest person in the office, didn't have the most clients. I'd go to these people for all the questions and they knew everything, but they never went out and got a client. And the the hard thing is you have to have people to advise and people that know how to get people to advise and then who are fast at delivering that advice. Like for me, and this is also going to sound horrible, but fast and 95% correct versus way too slow and 100% correct, I'm going to be fast and 95% correct over and over and over and over. Well, and I think it's probably not even 95. I, I understand the analogy that you're trying to trying to weave here. I think it's 80%, right? I mean, yeah. personal finance is, if it were just a dollars and cents thing, and borrow this from Dave Ramsey, if this were a dollars and cents thing in a mathematical equation, we wouldn't do half the stuff we do. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's not that it's just not that simple. And you have to have people to advise, like you said, and you have to be really good at that advice. That's the problem, I think, with our industry right now 
is that it's really tough to break into because of that. And the really smart people are finding that, well, wait a second, I've got to go do this other job. I have to go be a salesman or a saleswoman to be successful in this. I thought I could take my financial planning degree and my CFP and go make it happen. And there's a turn of that coming. And then the other side of that equation is, is that the people who are really, really, really great salespeople sometimes are not really great advisors. Right. Yeah. And, and you go, boy, that guy was awesome. Man, we love him. And then you go, oh, what are all those cops doing at his office with all those handcuffs and boxes and stuff? Yeah. I mean, so you got to do all the stuff that we've talked about. You got to research the advisor. It's you both. Know, if you're looking to hire somebody. So Luke, you got to do two things really well. You've got to be a great connector and a great marketer, and you have to keep up with learning the business, which is uh, probably best suited through going through the CFP program or something like that. Well, in the piece of the business that I'll caution you on, I think a lot of new advisors and a lot of bad advisors want to talk the sexy stuff, which is market conditions. What's the Fed talking about? Is the new Fed chairman going to change stuff? I just read in the Wall Street Journal today. Yeah. The best advisors know what you can truly do to move the needle for your client. And I think the sooner you divorce yourself from being hot stock jock and move toward being an agent for your client so that no matter whatever the problem is, whether it's, I need to get my driveway paved and how do I do that? Which you don't think of as a financial issue, but of course it's going to cost you money, right? And your job is to know people in the community. If I connect you to somebody who knows the best person to pave your driveway, or at least to get you the stuff on that, I'm a valuable member of your team. I'm your, I'm my client's agent up through proper asset allocation, Monte Carlo simulations, like some of the things that we look at that is specifically financial advisor. But I think if I think of myself as my client's agent, I have a job for life. If I think of my my job as being Joe Market prognosticator, which yeah. I saw all over the place when I was an advisor, I'm losing Still in a, now. Yep. losing in a hurry, man. Losing in a hurry. So good stuff. Thanks for the question. We also get mail. Doug brought down this one from the mailbag. This letter comes to us from John. John says, uh, Joe and OG, I got a correction and a question. John's going to correct us, and then he's going to ask our advice. Um, Hey, you guys suck at this, so let me fix this. And then uh, can I ask your help for something? I said there have been a couple questions about uh, restricted stock units. And uh, lately on the show, OG's been doling out some slightly incorrect tax advice, which means listeners are definitely not learning anything. Typically, with the restricted stock, you're not taxed when they're granted, but when they vest. So if you're given 400 shares on January 1st, 2018, they vest over four years. The first 100 shares be taxable when they vest. They'd be taxed at January 1st, 2019 stock price, and they'd be added to your W-2 as ordinary income. The grant date price is irrelevant. If you choose to keep them for a period of time, you'd be taxed, i.e. capital gain loss, at the difference between the date of sale versus the vest date. Just want to clear that up. Hopefully, OG has stopped ranting against me now. Sorry, I put you on mute. What was all that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was just thinking that, 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 that maybe, maybe we use the wrong term there, but I'm thinking, John, maybe we maybe we went a little too quick, but I thought we were fairly clear about that difference. But, but anyway, uh, hopefully. Obviously not. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Well, yeah. So thank you for that. Um, and restricted stock units, by the way, OG, if you have restricted stock, speaking of the last question from Luke and a financial advisor, if you have restricted stock and you and you haven't turned yourself into a pro about how restricted stock is taxed, shame on you, because that's a huge part of that restricted stock game. 
Well, it's not only how it's taxed, it's the timing of the execution, you know, in terms of when you sell it and when you don't. Yeah. Timing of how to take advantage of, you know, laddering your tax situation, you know, kind of clumping your tax deductions in one year against yeah, your, that. Your sell uh, dates and accumulating the stock versus uh, selling it on a regular basis. I mean. And then you've got the risk associated with owning a whole bunch of single issue Right position. So there's a lot that goes into it for sure. So John's question is about something different. It's about asset allocation. Okay. And more something than something I can't screw up, basically. And, right, John, let's hear it. And more than just how much I should have in stocks, bonds, cash, etc. He says, I'm looking zero zero. Got it. I'm looking for good resources that are more specific and provide some guidance on how much large, mid, and small cap in the US, as well as developed versus emerging markets from an international perspective, or how much real estate versus commodities. I use personal capital, but I don't really agree with their allocation and they don't go into enough detail. I found a bunch of research online, but can't really figure out what's worth using. I'm an aggressive investor, uses all indexes and have 20 plus years before retirement, but I may have trouble figuring out some of those allocations. Thanks, John. John wants to get into the weeds on uh, investment allocation. Well, I was, I was going to say there's a lot of professional tools and since I'm on that side of the thing all the time, yeah, you know, I pay lots of money for that. But I think you've got a. I was going to say uh, there's there are almost no tools outside of the professional realm. So your best bet is to ask your financial advisor what pro tools that they use and to dig in with them on on the more granular asset allocation. Uh, because generally speaking, John, you're in the 0.1 percent of people on the retail side that want to see that stuff but nearly 100% of people on the advisory side want to see it. So that's why you know personal capital doesn't dig into it. Nobody asked that question, right? Nobody. Every advisor asked that question, but nobody but you and a few of us money geeks asked that. I'll tell you a thing that I like. So I really like, and, and it's hard to dispute in modern portfolio theory, Harry Markowitz's uh, Efficient Frontier, right? And so I think what you're looking for, the question is, is where's the Efficient Frontier for my portfolio located? And the cool thing is, is you don't have to debate that or say, well, I don't agree with personal capital. I don't agree with these people. There's nothing to agree or disagree with. All this is, is historical data about where your maximum return would have been with the least amount of risk, right? That's what the efficient frontier is. So basically, for people that don't know about the efficient frontier, Dr. Harry Markowitz did this thing where if you take all the 19 different asset classes, he put them on a chart where one axis is reward going up and down, and the x-axis going out is risk. So as an example, cash would be very low return, very low risk, where emerging markets, commodities in emerging markets would be way, way, way high risk, potentially very, very high reward. And he took those dots and for different tax treatments, different periods of time, plotted those all over this chart. And then you can take different percentages of them and put those on the chart. And what he noticed was there's this line, it's kind of a curve line that initially goes pretty far north, meaning not taking a lot of a lot more risk, but getting a lot higher reward. And then it kind of smooths out and goes further east-west than north-south. So you can take a lot more risk and not get a much higher return historically. Not as much bang for your buck. Yes. And what he found, though, is there's no dots north of this line, and they call that the efficient frontier, the most efficient portfolio you can have. 
Uh, so it's a little bit nerdy, but there's a site where somebody has given you this for free. You got to input the asset classes you want. You put in the years that you want and uh, whatever data you want, but it's portfoliovisualizer.com forward slash efficient dash frontier and play with that baby to your heart's content. And that's going to give you a very analytical asset allocation based on whatever data you put in. And uh, John just buried himself. Oh, gee, <laughs> he's gonna good luck. He's gonna be there for weeks on end. I also like, you know, Morningstar's portfolio visualizer. I think, uh, you know, some of their X-ray tools, I think, are better than uh, personal capitals. A lot fewer people on the retail side use Morningstar. Professionals use the heck out of Morningstar. But I think you can get some bang for your buck uh, at Morningstar.com. Also, check that out. So those are two resources. Thanks for the question, John. Thanks also for the crazy question, Luke. I like that two-part question of Luke's. That was pretty neat. Head to stackybenjamins.com if you've got a question for us. Click on the button that says questions. It'll show you all the ways that you can send a question to the show. Thanks also to people who write reviews of this year podcast. It's so thrilling to see people explaining to strangers what they're in for when they listen to Stacking Benjamins. And this one's going on Mom's Fridge from Tony Max Saver. Tony says, don't sell yourself short. You're a terrific slouch. Five stars. Tony says, if you want a deep dive into economic policy or analysis on which cryptocurrency you should throw all of grandma's money into, go find one of the thousands of other podcasts. If you want to hear topical, hilarious breakdowns of financial planning news, come hang out with Joe and OG in the basement. Drinks on Doug at the Sizzler afterwards. I'm not sure Doug's paying for drinks, but the rest of it's probably true. I don't... Yeah. He manages to get uh, alligator arms when the bill comes, doesn't he? I can't. Oh, I gotta, I gotta hit the head. Uh, I'll be back. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna be right back, guys. Uh, no. You just need, need something while I'm up? Yeah. Now you good? Okay, I'll be right back. The rest of that's true, but either way, Tony, thanks a lot for the review, and that's headed to Mom's fridge. Also, last but not least, if you're looking for good financial help in your corner, guess what? OG's taking clients. So if you're ready to take the next step in your financial plan, head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash letter O, letter G, stackybedjamins.com forward slash OG, and uh, that will lead you to his calendar and uh, talking about the next steps. All right. Speaking about next steps, next up on the Stacking Benjamins show on Wednesday, Susan Hodges, uh, for a living, ran nursing homes. And uh, she went to college specifically to get that designation OG and uh, worked in Fort Worth, Texas, and has a great book called A Breach of Trust, which tells horror stories about what goes on in some of uh, our nation's poorest nursing homes, where the poorest of the poor are kept. And uh, you don't want to miss it because it's a cautionary tale, but it's also one I think we all need to hear. That's coming up on Wednesday. Don't miss it. And Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So what did we learn today? First, take the advice of Billy B from Wealth Well Done and get out there and hustle. If he can rebound from life's worst curveball, so can you. Come on, buttercup. Buckle up and let's get on with it. Second, having your will done. Even if computers can handle your estate as well as a person, your family's going to need people down the road if your estate has any kinks in it at all. So we'll recommend sticking with a real lawyer. But the big lesson? Don't call out Larry from Milwaukee while Joe's mom's listening. Turns out, Larry is Joe's mom's third cousin once removed by marriage. Huh. Small world. Small world. 
Yeah, sorry, sorry, Larry. I, man, just I'm sorry. Didn't know you were a member of the family, or did you make that up too, Larry? You cannot be trusted. You are slippery. Special thanks to Billy B from Wealth Well Done for joining us. You'll find all of Billy B's writing at wealthwelldone.com. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Kathleen Selmans handles design, newsletter, and classroom opportunities. If you'd like to learn more, head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash classes. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. Shannon Cowan is our community manager and social media guru. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I just jumped the shark. SB Podcast may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. We were just talking about Warren Buffett earlier today, and it reminded me that there's a great documentary on, H- on HBO. I think it's on Netflix, too, probably on YouTube by now, called Becoming Warren Buffett. I remember. You talked about this a couple of years ago, I think. I, th- I think it's been out a couple of years, yeah. I just happened to scroll past it when I was on my HBO Go app, and I scrolled past it and re- remembered that I liked it quite a bit. I also just watched a video about uh, Dan Sullivan, who's the uh, founder of Strategic Coach, which is a group that I belong to. It's called Game Changer. It's a really cool story about how Dan became who he is and how Strategic Coach is founded and kind of some thought leadership stuff in there. Not really an exciting, you know, <laughs> edge of your seat show, you know, but a good documentary nevertheless. I think you could just Google Dan Sullivan Game Changer and see what comes up there about 50 minutes or so. But you saw a movie. Uh, this I week. did. I saw this uh, new movie out starring uh, Rachel McAdams and Jason Bateman. This one was called Game Night. We're down to two teams, so for double points, what is the name of the purple Teletubby? Tinky Winky. You're both correct. <laughs> he always carried a red purse. Ooh, I'm a rebel just for kicks. Max is very competitive, as am I. It's one of the reasons I fell in love with him. Oh, it's easy. He was an incredible Hulk. Eric, Eric Bana. Other one. Mark Ruffalo. Other one. Lou Ferrigno. Primal Fear. Richard Gere never played the Incredible Hulk. Time. Bryce. Ed Norton. Oh, oh shit. Primal Fear. Guys, what do you say we do this at my house next week? This will be a game night to remember. Oh, boy. Mm. Tonight, we're taking game night up a notch. <laughs> 
need a board and we do not need pieces. We won't need any extra rudeness either. Someone in this room is going to be taken. Oh, it's a murder mystery party. Fun. Whoever finds the victim wins the grand prize, the keys to the stingray. Just the keys? No, Ryan, the whole car. <laughs> oh, yes. Just the keys? This is by the people who brought you uh, Horrible Bosses, which I thought was very funny and incredibly vulgar, by the way. So I was expecting some more slapstick around the line of Horrible Bosses. By the way, if you're going to see Horrible Bosses, see that one. Do not see Horrible Bosses 2, which was... Oh, uh, that was so bad, wasn't it? It <laughs> was absolutely <clears throat> rotten. I hate the fact that I'm a completionist because I went to see that. But, you know, game night. Come on, dude. I mean, I'm... <laughs> You had front row seats in that one. I'm on my way to game night tonight, right? So game night, I'm all about that. So I thought this is a great thing for me to see. This movie wasn't nearly as funny as I thought it was going to be. And it was actually a better movie than I thought it was going to be. Obviously, at the start, they're having these game nights at different people's houses. Uh, Jason Bateman's brother shows up, and he's the guy that uh, Jason always wanted to be, and he could never beat him at games. And as you heard on the trailer, Jason Bateman's brother says, hey, this will be a different one. And they think it's going to be a murder mystery. But when the guns that they're pointing are real and the bad guys show up, all of a sudden you realize this is going to be a whole different game night and there's something going on. And I have to tell you, the twist that happened in this movie, I didn't see coming. And uh, Cheryl generally sees the twist coming in movies. She didn't see the big twist. And then and the movie keeps twisting and turning and twisting and turning. And I thought that was really fun. If you remember the, you remember the movie about the magicians in Las Vegas, where they're all kind of working. Yeah, yeah. yeah, where they're all working together. And uh, now you see me? Yeah, Morgan Freeman's trying to figure it out. And uh, this this movie, probably, if you like that movie, you're going to like this movie. Because if you remember, kind of fun, kind of funny. Not really a slapstick comedy, but there's some ha-ha lines. But at the end, it takes some big twists. This movie does the same thing. So this is a movie that's going to translate really well to the small screen. So if you don't want to see it in the theater... You know, don't have the movie pass. I think this will be a great see at home movie, but definitely one that's well worth the hour and 40 minutes you spend watching it. Big thumbs up for game night for me. Cool. Yeah. Can't wait to check it out. Yeah, it's good stuff. All right. Go stack some Benjamins, everybody. We'll see you next time. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is military appreciation month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life, and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.